May God's grace and mercy and peace be yours from God our Heavenly Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, so we came in here uh, last week a little prematurely because of the weather, but, but today, uh, officially, we are back here in the gym for Connect. And uh, to be honest, it's always an exciting time for me. As much as I love worshiping God out in the beauty of his creation in the church grove, uh, every time we come back into the gym in the fall, for me at least, it just kind of feels like, like coming home. Uh, in one form or another, our contemporary service has been in this room, in this space, for over 30 years. Uh, over that time period, there's been a lot of, of changes. Uh, almost seven years ago now, we started Connect, and with that came uh, some big changes, some small changes. One of the changes that we made was we installed some, some new lighting uh, just to try to, to change the atmosphere and hear a little bit from kind of school gymnasium to more of a, a sacred space, a, a place set apart for worship. Uh, but as we come back to the gym this time, it's a little different than before. We're only here uh, for eight weeks. And then Connect will be moving over to our new home in the St. Lawrence Worship and Events Center. So in preparation for that, all of the, the Connect lighting that used to be installed above your heads there uh, has been moved. It's, it's being installed over in the new place uh, to get ready for the worship that's going to begin there in November. So at, at least in one small way, uh, for the next eight weeks here in the gym, we're going old school, uh, kind of fluorescent gym lighting and all. So that got our Connect planning team thinking, this might be a good time to go back to the heart of worship. What is it all about? What is worship when it's all said and done? It's certainly not about the lighting or the staging or, or the building or the style of music or the latest trends. For the last seven years at Connect, uh, we've really striven to strike the right balance between removing every obstacle we can that stand between Jesus and his people while at the same time honoring and holding on to the, the traditions of the church that have been handed down to us for our good and, and the reasons for them. There is a purpose for what we do. There's, there's a reason that the worship here at Connect looks pretty different from, from worship at a lot of other places with kind of a contemporary service. The integrity of, of what we're doing here and especially of what God is doing here is incredibly important to us. And so we've made some very intentional decisions not to throw out certain elements that you don't always find in other church services. Things like a time we had earlier to confess our sins to God and to hear him speak to us his forgiveness. You know, time to reflect on God's word from, from both the Old and the New Testaments. Time to confess our faith with the church throughout the ages using the words of the ancient creeds. Time to receive God's mercy and grace as, as it's poured out on us in the sacraments. So that's kind of just a really long introduction uh, to our sermon series that we're starting today that we're calling Old School, uh, Why We Do What We Do. Uh, the next four weeks, we're going to be focusing in on what worship is all about. We're, we're looking to recalibrate our hearts so that we're experiencing and we're receiving and we're giving everything that God desires for us at Connect as we prepare to move over to our new worship space. So as we do that, I want to start uh, with a question that I want you to, to consider and kind of try to come up with a, a quick answer for this if you can. What is the greatest example of worship 
in the Bible? Now, I know that's a hard question. I, I hope you go home and really think about it for a long time. But for right now, I'm going to give you just a second. Uh, what's your first impression, the first thing that comes to mind? And I'll give you just a second to share it with somebody kind of seated next to you. So, so go ahead real quick. Go ahead and share. All right, so I said I was just going to give you a quick second, and I want to I be a man of my words. So um, hopefully you'll be able to kind of continue this conversation at home. Uh, but a lot of things could come to mind, right? Uh, maybe you, you thought of, you know, the worship of God's people Israel in the Old Testament as they stand on the banks of the Red Sea after seeing God's deliverance. Maybe you thought of the tabernacle in the desert or, or the temple in Jerusalem where, where the people of Israel would ascend Mount Zion and come to worship God in the place where he promised to be. Or maybe a picture like in, in Revelation 7 came to mind with all these, this multitude of all the people from every tribe, nation, and language and, and just bowing before the throne of God. I mean, all of these are just such beautiful pictures of, of what worship looks like that the Bible gives us and, and there's so many other possibilities as well. But right now, I wanna focus in on one specific act of worship that's found in Luke's gospel. Uh, that our Lutheran confessions call the highest worship of Christ. This, this is kind of the, the best, the greatest example of what worship, true worship, is all about. Uh, so let me just share this account with you from, from Luke chapter 7. And you know what? I'm going to ask you to do something. Would you stand as I share this account? Two reasons for that. It kind of gets the blood flowing. Um, and makes us maybe a little more eager to, to listen to what God's about to say to us. And second of all, uh, when the church reads from the Gospels, oftentimes that's, that's been something we do. We stand to, to honor uh, what Jesus has to say to us there. Now, so here's what, here's what happens. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. 
And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go ahead and have a seat. So what happened that day at Simon's house um, is just absolutely shocking. This woman, who who virtually every scholar agrees is probably a prostitute, and if not that, a a well-known adulteress in the community, has the gall, the the courage, the faith to interrupt this high-powered banquet and to wash the feet of Jesus with this expensive ointment and, and her own tears in her hair. All along, she doesn't say a single word, but what she's saying with her actions is clear. Of course, she's not the only one speaking with her silence, is she? Jesus even answers Simon's objections to all of this without the Pharisee having to say anything out loud. Jesus shows him that he very much knows who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. He knows not only that she is a sinner, but that her sins are many. As a matter of fact, Jesus knows every single one of them. And he welcomes her. And he declares to her that her sins are forgiven. In the Apology of the Augsburg Confession in the year 1530, the Lutheran reformers uh, wrote this about this woman. The woman came with the opinion that the forgiveness of sins should be sought in Christ. This worship is the highest worship of Christ. She could think nothing greater about Christ. To seek forgiveness of sins from him was truly to acknowledge the Messiah, to think of Christ this way, to worship him this way, to embrace him this way is truly to believe. So Christ praises her entire worship. And this woman's worship shows us today that the heart of worship is repentance. The heart of worship is coming to Jesus, seeking his mercy, begging for his forgiveness, and finding in him rescue from our sins as he welcomes us to the table. King David got this, right? In Psalm 51, which we heard a few minutes ago, David was confessing who and what sort of man he was. He was an adulterer and a murderer. So he did the only thing he could do. He begged God for mercy for forgiveness, for God to to blot out everything dirty and horrible inside of him. He knew that the heart of worship is repentance. And so he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So let me ask you, as you came into the presence of God here this morning, how did you approach Jesus, as a good buddy, as a a good weekly pick-me-up, or as the Lord of your life who alone gives you hope for forgiveness with a broken and contrite heart, with your hair down and your eyes welling up with tears. Now, if you came here today to to visit with Jesus, your buddy, or or for your weekly pick-me-up, I'm not putting you down. In fact, the Girls of Grace earlier reminded us how great a friend that we have in Jesus, and we certainly need him to get through every week. But let's always remember that we have a friend in Jesus because he bled and died to take away our sins. 
Let our pick-me-up be that those sins are not counted against us because they were counted against Jesus instead. Because we know what God does with a broken and contrite heart. He heals it. He binds it together again. He, he proclaims his mercy and rebuilds it and reforms it and reshapes it and, and causes it to start beating again. Make no mistake, your sins are many. So are mine. Jesus knows who and, and what sort of person you are. He knows your character. He knows the depths of your heart and all the darkness and the chaos there that you don't let anybody else see. He sees it. And still he loves you. The Jesus whose feet were washed by that woman at Simon's house would wash the feet of his disciples and, and would go to the cross and suffer and die for your sins. And then, a few days later, when, when some other women came to him to once again anoint his body with expensive ointments, well, this time he wasn't there because he had risen from the dead. When we come here to this place, when we go there to that place in, in a couple of months, the risen Christ comes to meet us. He forgives us. He heals us. He, he welcomes us. And then after it's all said and done, he sends us home and we return there forgiven, new. Or as our reading from Luke 18 put it, justified, right with God. In that reading, we heard about two very different people with, with two very different hearts. The Pharisee's heart wasn't broken and contrite. It was proud. Proud of his accomplishments, proud of his own personal holiness, proud of his good deeds. His prayer wasn't so much a petition to God as a congratulation of self. Really a, a declaration that he didn't really even need God at all. And instead God should kind of be thankful to him for what he had to offer. The tax collector was just the opposite. His heart was broken and contrite and all he could do was just beat on his chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that, that the sinful tax collector went home justified, forgiven, right with God. And the self-righteous Pharisee did not. We can see here that the most dangerous sin of all, particularly when it comes to our worship, is pride. If we come to worship God thinking that, that we're doing him some big favor, uh, that we, in and of ourselves, have something to offer him that, that's worth anything at all. <laughs> that, that worship is primarily about what we contribute. We're not only missing the point. We're missing out on precisely what God wants to give us when we come to this place and gather together as his people. When we forget that the heart of worship is repentance, we make worship into something other than what God says it is. We rob him of the honor due to him, and we, we rob ourselves of the gifts that he's so eager to give us. Many of you have heard of, of the 95 Theses of Martin Luther. That was that document that he nailed to the door of the chapel in, in Wittenberg, the castle church there that kicked off the Reformation. Um, how many of you have ever read the 95 Theses? Yeah, not, probably not too many of us. It's a, such a huge document, and we might not even really know what it says. Well, here's what Thesis 1 of the 95 says. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. A lack of true repentance was the main problem in the church those days, uh, a trust in one's own self or, or one's own goodness to save 
I would say that a lack of true repentance is the main problem in the church today as well, though it looks, looks a bit different. When we truly worship God as he desires to be worshiped, when we remember that the heart of worship is repentance, uh, that fights against that problem, it, it brings us healing. So for the next three weeks, uh, we're going to be talking about this in, in greater detail. The heart of worship is repentance. So what does that end up looking like? Uh, we're going to talk about it in, in terms of, of these two words that theologians have used to kind of describe what happens in worship. The sacrificial and the sacramental. Uh, now don't be intimidated or, or turned off by those big words. Uh, they just mean this. What we do in worship and what God does in worship. So the sacrificial side of worship is what we offer up to God. And, and as we've been talking about today, the first thing that we offer up to God is, well, nothing. <laughs> nothing except a confession that in and of ourselves we have nothing good to give to him. But then, by his grace, by what he gives to us, he does enable us to, to offer up a sacrifice of praise for him. So we'll be looking at that in, in week four of our series. Uh, but for the next two weeks, we're going to be focusing on the sacramental side of worship. Uh, how God brings us his word and, and pours out on us his grace in the sacraments. And, and what he does there is, is he heals us and he forgives us and he feeds us and he washes us. And he breathes his life into us. And so next week, we're going to be looking at uh, the word in worship, the role of God's word as we come together and, and gather in this place and how he creates and sustains faith within us. So I hope you're looking forward to this uh, as much as I am as we uh, look forward to that. In the meantime, may God's grace and, and peace uh, be with you. May the peace that passes our understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord now and forever. Amen.